Hello, you lovely lot. I wanted to take a moment to share an exciting announcement with you all. I will be doing a live show for Happy Mum, Happy Baby at the podcast show in London on the 22nd of May. This will be a live episode of this very podcast featuring me and a very special soon-to-be-announced guest. Get ready for a candid conversation, unfiltered truths, laughs, invaluable non-judgmental advice and lived experiences. Dive into the complexities of parenting while juggling work, relationships and personal growth and we'll be talking beyond the baby years. As well as the live episode, the show will also include a Q&A with both me and my guest. Tickets go on sale this Friday the 26th of April at 10am, but anyone who is part of the Happy Mum, Happy Baby newsletter will be getting early access to tickets on Wednesday the 24th of April at 10am. To sign up to the newsletter and for more information about the event, please head to happymumhappybaby.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. And welcome to Happy Mum, Happy Baby, Parenting SOS. Now, getting pregnant and becoming a parent are usually celebrated as happy times, but they can often be stressful and overwhelming too. While some anxiety during this time is normal, around one in five women may experience something called perinatal anxiety during their pregnancy and up to a year after giving birth. Today, I am joined by Dr. Ori Onobanjo. Dr. Onobanjo is a chartered counselling psychologist with substantial mental health and psychotherapeutic experience and has a special interest in perinatal mental health. Hi! Hi! <laughs> it's really good to be here. Ah, thank you so much. When we start putting together all the different topics for this series, I knew that I wanted to talk about perinatal mental health and perinatal anxiety and your name was up there at the top of the list. And then I saw that you haven't been online for a while. I thought, oh yeah. my gosh, we're not going to be able to actually speak to you. But here you are. <laughs> Yes, here I am. Here I am. Yeah, I've been busy having a baby, so... We'll let you off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. What's it like, you know, having a baby, knowing so much as you do about perinatal anxiety, maternal mental health? I guess in a way it's like you know where to go for help and you know the sorts of things, like tools and things that you can use to help yourself. Yeah. But it's still quite humbling to be honest because at the end of the day you know I'm a human being before I'm a psychologist or anything like that and I still struggle with certain things and you know have anxieties about certain things and I found my postnatal journey quite challenging as well so I think in a way it's been quite a privilege I suppose to go through it myself because it kind of brings things to life in a different way obviously professionally you're doing the work in a different capacity but when yeah. you're also a mum and you're also kind of thinking like you know these are some of the things or some of the moments that your clients are living through and you have a kind of more of a felt sense of that it's quite humbling but yeah you do kind of think oh yeah I know what to do but sometimes you can't access those tools. <laughs> it's also sort of that thing of say as I something not as I do what is that saying Ori? <laughs> Is it do as I say, but not as That's I do? That's the yeah. one. Is it a little bit like that? Like, you know what yeah. the advice is, you know what yeah. you should be doing, but actually taking on that wisdom yourself can be quite problematic. A hundred percent. That's it. I think the conversation around postnatal depression and even postpartum psychosis, I would say, thanks to Louis Theroux and other people speaking out about it, like people are more aware of things like that. But when it mm. comes to perinatal anxiety, is this quite a new approach? And is that because people are talking about it a lot more? 
I think people are definitely talking about it a lot more. But the thing is, is it's always been there. And it's always kind of perplexed me because I know there's a lot of focus on postnatal depression and other things like postpartum psychosis as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more awareness about that and things. But with anxiety, it's always surprising because I'm like so many people struggle with anxiety in general, even more so when you become pregnant and, you know, you're going to have a baby. There's so many different shifts that are happening for you that it's understandable to feel quite anxious. And obviously there's, you know, it's a continuum and for some people it becomes really, really severe. Yeah, I'm really glad it's being talked about more now because there's some research that says actually it's more common than depression, which you wouldn't think given how much postnatal depression is talked about. Yeah. And also I guess it's that line of how much anxiety is just normal anxiety because yeah. you are there's a massive life-changing event and no matter yeah. how much you've wanted this baby or however much you've thought this might be a part of yeah. your future and almost in a way your life is gearing towards that possibly, when it's a reality, there's such a big shift actually that it is expected for some level of anxiety to creep in yeah. and those little doubts of yourself really and your capability in that role. A hundred percent. That's the thing. Anxiety is normal. We can't get away from it. Mm. And I think that can be difficult to accept that actually is a part of life. It's normal to feel anxious. It's not pleasant to feel anxious, but the anxiety is there in a way. I suppose you can kind of see it as a bit of a messenger. It's there to kind of maybe tell you what you need to pay more attention to, or there might be certain, I guess, historical wounds or emotional wounds that you might be carrying that because of that, you might find that your own anxiety will manifest in a particular way, you know, to do with a particular thing. You know, anxiety is different for everyone. I've read something you said actually before about childhood trauma and how that can play a part in the anxiety that you might be feeling as well. A hundred percent. I think some example is that for some people, you know, their own experience of childhood or being parented was really not a very good one. They didn't have good enough parents Mm. or a very good experience so when they become parents it might be something that they very much want and they want to create something different to what they experience but actually there might be a lot of anxiety about can they kind of come out of the cycle that they feel they were a part of can they do things differently will they be able to do things differently and sometimes there can be a lot of comparison between yourself and your parents and you know you want there to be that separation if you feel things weren't very good But at the same time, your parents are your parents and there's certain things that you would have inherited from them, whether you want those things or not. And so I think it's great in this kind of, I suppose, era where there's a lot more focus on mindfulness and being a bit more aware and reflective about what's going on for you. So you can, I guess, interrupt some of those patterns that you may not want to perpetuate. But it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. On Parenting SOS, I ask you the three questions that you are asked the most. I have yours here. I'm yeah, going to ask okay. you the questions that everyone asks okay. me. <laughs> so what is perinatal anxiety and how does it affect people struggling with this? In a nutshell, perinatal anxiety is anxiety experienced during pregnancy and the postpartum period. I suppose I would say with that is that sometimes somebody might have already been struggled with anxiety before becoming pregnant. And so it's kind of like it might be that it manifests in a different way or it intensifies during the pregnancy and the postpartum journey whereas for some people it's a case of they've never really struggled with anxiety in a significant way before and then all of a sudden or maybe it's not all of a sudden but at some point in their pregnancy they they start to struggle with it so yeah that's more or less what it is but I suppose in terms of different ways that that can manifest itself I mean there's different mental health conditions and diagnostic labels out there but for some people it, it could be something like generalized anxiety disorder which is more a case of feeling anxious about lots and lots of different things. So there's not necessarily one particular theme 
but it's like the anxiety kind of attaches itself to lots of different situations and one you might feel like you've resolved the anxiety in one situation and all of a sudden that same feeling kind of pops up about something else and it just kind of keeps going on and on for other people it's more around social anxiety and their anxiety is very much about feeling judged by other people which is difficult in motherhood because yeah. as we know that that is such a massive part of what we face every yes, day and so yeah. much of that comes from ourselves and how yes, we think we're yeah. going to be viewed i think there's a lot of projections that sometimes go on so it's like what you think about yourself you imagine other people are thinking yeah. about you. and some and sometimes they might be yeah and but often perhaps they're not because i suppose that most people are quite wrapped up in what's going on for them to be honest <laughs> but i think within the motherhood space there is a lot of comparison and judgment I do think that there is and kind of like oh what are you doing you know, even me it just you know as I've become a mum I've noticed that oh gosh that like you're really observed when yeah. you become a parent in a way that I don't think I've ever been observed by other people around me before so I can really understand if people would have social anxiety to be honest because you know some people do things in a particular way and others you know we can be judgmental as human beings it's natural but it's just something that needs to be kept in check the next question that you get asked is what tips and strategies can help to manage perinatal anxiety and or depression? And I guess because they're so different, perinatal anxiety and depression. So they've got to be looked at in very different ways, surely. I think in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. The reason I say that is because I guess a lot of people who have anxiety also have depression or a lot of people who have depression also have anxiety as well. So it can kind of overlap in right. a way. But I mean, in terms of, yeah, they're different things, but they can kind of interweave with each other and kind of the anxiety can kind of like you can feel because you're depressed, you then become really anxious about having to try and, you know, get yourself to do things, for example. Yeah. And so one can feed the other. Yeah, exactly. The anxiety can also lead you to feel depressed because of how the anxiety impacts your life or the things you're not able to do or the things you feel you've lost because of the anxiety and how much you're suffering. So they do feed each other. So I think it's important for some people will be able to relate to both. Some people will only be able to relate to one or the other. But I guess in terms of tips and strategies, I think the important thing is to get to know what like your triggers are. Yeah. That's just the case of those things that, you know, raise your anxiety or worsen it if you know you kind of already have kind of a baseline of feeling anxious. And I think just being able to know what those things are, who those people may be, where you might feel it the most and like also just thinking about what's helped you deal with that in the past and what's kind of made it more difficult for you to deal with that in the past because in that way you can kind of I suppose prepare for it especially if we're talking in the perinatal period mm. and you know being pregnant and going to postpartum you might be able to prepare for certain things some things you won't be able to prepare for but I think just the act of being able to reflect on those things can help you feel a bit more contained and a bit more like okay I have some sort of plan as to like what I could do or you know if something happens and you find it difficult it doesn't surprise you because sometimes it can be the the feeling's horrible but it's also like a shock that you almost weren't expecting yourself to have that response or to react that way and then that can be like doubly difficult if that makes yeah. sense so I think yeah those are some things but I think self-compassion which is easy to say more difficult to do but just exploring what that could mean to you and that can sometimes just be more about things you can do for yourself that are compassionate even if you can't say compassionate things to yourself but what would be the kind thing to do in this situation and sometimes the kind things can be difficult it's always the easy option which mm -hmm. I think often people can think that it is and I think that's ultimately like looking at what your needs are what do you need right now what do you need in this season of your life what do you need from the people around you and being able to tune into that but that's a skill as well yeah. that doesn't come easy to everyone and I do recognize that 
But, you know, journaling could be a good way of doing that. Mindfulness can be a good way of doing that. Seeking therapy, if you have the means to, can be a good way of doing that. But I think it's all about creating space to just reflect and just arrive and sit still and just notice what's actually going on, what's showing up for you. Because there's so much busyness, Mm -hmm. there's so much movement when you become a parent, even during pregnancy, up and down to the hospital, different appointments, you know, this kind of thing. And I think it's about finding the space to just be able to be still sometimes and get in tune with what you need Um, and then you know thinking about what those things could be and how you might be able to get them because especially during that time so much of it is out of your control you know your body all of a sudden isn't doing what you're used to it doing yeah and to be able (laughs) to find stillness within that and kind of sit in it must be beneficial for some yeah it's difficult though but I think if you can and even if it's just practicing trying to do that you might try to do that and think oh I couldn't I couldn't be mindful today or I couldn't sit still that's fine but even the attempt because the attempt you're sending a different message to yourself that actually you are worth being able to kind of just sit still and have some kindness towards yourself that it kind of starts to send a different message or a different idea about how maybe life can be and I know there's some things you can't change and there are things you can't control. It's, it's, there's lots of unpredict- unpredictability and lots of variables that you can't control for sure. But it's like where you can, where you feel you have that agency autonomy to be able to do certain things for yourself or create space for yourself or however that looks like, I think is really important. But not to beat yourself up if you find it difficult to yeah. do because even as a psychologist, you know, going to what we were talking about before, I find that difficult to do. I find myself getting caught up in all the different things I need to do to, you know, look after my son and yeah, mum life, yeah. really. <laughs> and when we're talking about, you know, pausing, and so some people, the idea will be so bonkers, you know, we are so yeah. busy, it's, we're constantly doing. So to actually just sit, it's quite a strange feeling. Is there yeah. anything we should be doing within that moment where we try and sit still? Should we be using apps that, you know, prompt mm. calmness and meditation? Some people turn to sort of colouring to kind of get the noise out or Mm. Lego. Lego's my new go-to thing when I just don't want to think about anything other than putting bricks together. Is it just different for everyone? I think it's different for everyone completely. I mean, for some people using apps like mindfulness apps like Calm or Headspace or, you know, the different... I mean, there's loads of different ones. You can find loads of stuff on YouTube as well, by the way, it's free. So um, I think it could be doing a mindfulness. It could be just taking a walk. It could just be having a nice bath. It could just be just sitting in a sort of like a dark room. And I know that sounds a bit, maybe a bit depressing. But what I mean is like, we're so stimulated all the time. Yeah. Like we're constantly doing stuff like just to kind of down regulate just your your body, your nervous system. Like I do that sometimes. I need to just be in a dimly lit room mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, just to get my body to calm down again because it's just moving all the time. So I think it's different things for different people. And for some people, it's something you can also do with other people. So like friends or people that make you feel safe or people that you know help you feel calm, spending time with those people. So it's not that you have to do it by yourself. It might be you engaging in not necessarily a hobby or an activity that you enjoy, but just trying to really be present as you're doing it. And just notice when you're feeling that you're getting distracted or you're not. It's okay because you're bound to. So I suppose I don't want to make it sound like, you know, it's easy to be still because it really isn't. And it's just about cultivating that practice because if you never try to, where will you ever find the opportunity to do that? And the Mm. thing is, is that we do need it. We do need time to wind down. We do need time to downregulate and just come back to ourselves. And I suppose that's what's your method of coming back to yourself. I guess it's something to reflect on. I think my kids are much more in tune with how they're feeling 
than most adults are. Like yeah. even just at my kids' school, there are so many schools that do mindfulness and all sorts of things, but they have a simple chart that, that has different colours that they literally mm. just go take their little piece of blue tack and they put their name on whatever colour they're feeling today. And they know what those colours mean. Mm. But as adults, most of us don't take that time to go, oh, mm. I'm feeling a little bit like this today. Maybe I should do this. Or you just have a to-do list that you've just got to <laughs> get through. And it's hard because those things do need to get done. And I think yeah. that's where the conflict is. So it'd be nice to just, you know, take all the time in the world <laughs> to reflect, of course. <laughs> I guess that's the thing. It's like, where can you realistically mm. put that in or yeah. implement that? And you may not always be able to do it. But yeah, just because that can be containing in itself. Because sometimes you're just feeling all of these things. You just feel a bit agitated, but you can't pinpoint like, what is it? And sometimes it's not being able to pinpoint it that makes it worse. Right. And sometimes when you can just pinpoint, okay, I know what this is about. I can't deal with it right now or it has to be a conversation for another day, but I know what this is. That can help to calm you as well. So I think not easy to do, but with anxiety, sometimes that's the way I think it, certain things can be resolved. But I also want to kind of just mention, obviously with anxiety where it's sort of gotten to the point where it's really pervasive and you can't function and you can't get anything done and you're completely overwhelmed and, you know, immersed in it. That's a different thing that you might need to go, you know, and have therapy. There's different, you know, evidence-based treatments out there that you can have and you can pursue that through your GP or you can self-refer as well to these talking therapy services in the NHS or seek support privately. But I suppose I just wanted to differentiate between that because there's some anxiety that you can contain yourself, but mm -hmm. for some people it might be that actually, no, I know I can't contain this no matter how many, you know, mindfulnesses I do or things like that. And actually they need proper help with somebody to kind of walk with them to understand what their anxiety is about and begin to make whatever changes they feel that they would like to to make. That's something that always blows my mind actually when we talk about statistics of people who might get perinatal anxiety or postnatal depression. Mm. Those statistics are from the people that come forward. Yes, and so, yeah. you know, but actually so many people are trying to muddle their way through, trying yeah. to be more aware, trying to get on top of how they're feeling. More than ever, I do think we've got to realize that we're not alone in our feelings yeah. and also know when you have to go and seek help. And actually, that is your third question. Where can you seek help if you're struggling with your mental health during the perinatal period? So I guess that's twofold, really. At what point should you go and seek help? And where can you go when you decide to? In terms of the point you should seek help, I think is whenever you feel you're struggling. Yeah. It might be that your struggle might be a normal struggle that other people struggle with. That's fine. And maybe for some people, they continue in that way or managing using the tools that they've got without having to seek extra help. But that doesn't mean you can. Yeah. And I think it's that thing of really having to see yourself as an individual now. It is good to have commonalities and everything like that. But it's like, well, what do you need? Do you need the support right now? Do you need the help? And I think but you do have to be willing to be honest with yourself about that because it's very easy but oh no, no it's fine and we do muddle through we function all the time but functionality is not necessarily a sign of health yeah. even though it might appear that way because it's like well you're able to get on with things and cope with things but that doesn't mean that internally that you're feeling how you would like to be feeling so I think definitely it's when you feel that you're struggling however even if it, you feel like it looks like it's not that big of a deal if it's a big deal to you and you know that then I think you can seek help. Because I think what I like to try and avoid is getting so bad 
then it's at that point it's like you almost need to prove that it's bad enough for you to seek help and that's completely counterintuitive in my mind even though I understand the process of how that might happen and I think it happens in a lot of cases but it's like seeking help is about maintaining health as well it's not necessarily about everything getting so bad and then how you having to then recover and come back to health sometimes that can't be avoided but sometimes you know it can if you feel able to seek help early enough so I think yeah why do you think that so many people put off asking for help I think there's lots of shame about this idea that they should be able to cope Mm. that other people are doing it why can't they what's so special about them I think there's really just unrealistic expectations. I feel like the society we live in, as much as there's a lot more transparency things, but I think like perfectionism is still very rampant, in my opinion, like in kind of even in people I've seen in my own clinical work, this idea that you've got to always aim for the highest and mm. perform to the highest and do your best all the time. And that there's not really any room for error, partly because of your own judgments about yourself, but also feeling that you're going to be judged by other people because people can be unforgiving and always want to point out the things that you're not doing well for their own reasons. And I think that's the thing. There is still stigma about it. Sometimes that stigma is self-stigma. It might be that the people around you would be completely supportive and understanding. But if you feel I shouldn't be feeling like this or I should be able to cope, I'm going to try seeking help or not seeking help is very much tied into your sense of self yeah whether you see yourself as somebody who's capable you know who can get on with things who's strong all of those kinds of things but it's difficult because a lot of people don't seek help when they need it which is really sad and a lot of people I think are suffering Mm. internally but you wouldn't know it and I think that's also really sad yeah it's it's really tricky yeah so if someone is listening and they're thinking you know I know that I need to go and ask for help. Where do they go for that support? Well, I mean, it depends on if you're pregnant. I suppose you could speak to your midwife and they normally will have, I think most hospitals will have mental health midwives in the hospital. That's quite difficult because I can remember when I first had my first child Mm. being like that midwife, that health visitor that was coming over, they were Mm. assessing me to see whether I was a good mum. Am I going to be a good mum? Are they going to like in a film? Are they going to take my child away because I'm struggling? And actually realising early on that those health professionals that you see are on your side is so beneficial. It literally changes the whole way that you can access that support you know they're on your side they want you to be the best version of you because also there's a knock-on effect with how you are Mm -hmm. in your pregnancy you know there's an effect on your baby exactly exactly it's in everyone's interest for you to be doing well and to be feeling well yeah I know people often worry about I guess social services and you know and that kind of thing but I mean that is generally in an extreme circumstances and even that is a process that wouldn't just happen I can understand why there might be a feeling you've got to sort of portray that you're doing really well. But actually, Mm. I completely agree. I think generally speaking, they are on your side and they want you to do well. I mean, that's why I'm assuming these people have gotten into this line of work in the first place. So I think remembering that, but I think that's where that judgment, you know, this perception that other people are judging you can be really intense, like can intensify. Because in a way it's like, oh, you know, how's feeding going? And you do have to give quite a lot of information about what you're doing and how you're getting on it is quite exposing. So you can understand why people would feel anxious about it. But yeah, yeah, generally people do want to help. And the thing is, is that they might also be asking you because they've got lots of resources that you might not know about. And Mm -hmm. it's an opportunity for them to give you that. But if you say, oh, no, you're fine, then it's like, oh, okay, well, 
you know, maybe they might not. I mean, I know they really should be giving you those resources regardless, but I mean, it's just the case of you might get more information or it might actually give you access to the support that you need Mm -hmm. if you're able to be more open about it. But it's challenging. There's so many reasons why somebody would not say anything when they are struggling. Yeah, it's so tough. We actually asked the Happy Mum Have Baby community to send in some questions. So we have a few. One person says that she spoke to her midwife about her mood and she was dismissed. She just said, it will pass. Is that okay? In that situation, should she sort of go to her GP? Should she email in or write in to the hospital and say, this happened, just so you're aware? I don't feel like this is a good way to be, you know, addressing the situation. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I suppose with that, well, I'm sorry this person was dismissed because that's not really the sort of response you're supposed to get. Mm. I know professionals have certain legitimacy and authority that they carry, but yeah. it's not for them to tell you whether it will pass or, or not. They're your feelings and your struggles. So I think you could speak to your GP if you wanted to. That's another route. Like you can still say you want to be referred for talking therapies. You don't have to go through your midwife. Mm. I mean, yes, it's useful for them to be aware of that if you're struggling, because like I said, there are mental health midwives in normally within the team, or it might be that you want to you ask to speak to a different midwife or you find out what, you know, the contact details for the mental health midwife team. I mean, obviously it works differently for different hospitals, yeah. but you can still get the help you need or get information from other people within the maternity system it doesn't just have to be based on one person telling you it will pass. If you, you know, you felt bad enough to even raise it in the first place. And that would have taken so much courage on that person's yes, behalf exactly. to kind of say, exactly. you know, I know I should be feeling this, but actually I'm not feeling Exactly. Great. Yeah. And it's like, well, what if it doesn't pass? Because, yeah. it, you know, it might not just pass on its own. For some people it does. And I think just remembering that sometimes professionals will say things based off their own experience. Well, you know, it will pass. It was fine. I mean, I felt like that, but I was fine. Yeah. That's completely unrelated to your experience. I think it's important to remember that and just have confidence in what you know about yourself. You know your own feelings better than anybody else could tell you. Yes, maybe it's common to feel like this or common to feel like that. But at the end of the day, nobody else knows how that feeling or difficulty that you're having is impacting your specific life Mm -hmm. and your particular family. That carries a lot more weight than what somebody else might say. So I think still contact your GP you can refer yourself to talking therapies. You don't have to go through your GP or even if you wanted to, you could, you know, seek maybe a therapy, even just a consultation with a therapist or something, you know, privately online or in person, even just to have an initial conversation yeah. as well and get a different opinion if, if it's about the mental health side of things. So I think that's probably what I would say in that situation, but mm. definitely your feelings are valid. Yeah. Even if somebody else invalidates them doesn't mean you have to do the same yeah. too. One person has asked, how can I manage perinatal anxiety after loss? I guess it's what you were talking about with trauma having an effect and causing that anxiety Mm. during pregnancy. That's really, really difficult. In that sort of situation, it is about being able to normalise that, of course, you're going to struggle with anxiety. Loss is is devastating, Mm. whatever type of loss it may have been. So it's just not to expect yourself to respond or to be in the same place as other people who haven't experienced that. Like, yes, you might now find yourself in a place where you're pregnant again or, you know, you have a child or something like that, but it's just not the same. So it's just about being mindful, I think, about the comparisons, because coming back from a loss is a completely different thing Mm -hmm. to somebody who's never experienced it. 
before. So I think just normalizing that. And I think maybe finding spaces that it does feel difficult because they're so few and far between. And I know there's lots of different charities like pandas and, you know, different charities that you can, you can call and speak to, but trying to find spaces where there's an understanding of loss. I don't know of any particular sort of um, perinatal loss charity or organization, but I know that there are organizations around loss and that, you know, any type of loss, you might want to, you know, go to those kinds of spaces to speak to about your own loss as well. And I think just thinking about what you need as well to help you manage the loss. Like it might be that if you've experienced a loss like that, you need more reassurance with certain things. You might need to feel like you need to ask more questions about certain things. You know, there might be certain things that will occur to you or you won't worry about that other people wouldn't worry about. And you need to feel comfortable to be able to be open about that and that have the professional and whoever you're speaking to understand that so it might be that you might want to sort of I mean I would assume that whoever your healthcare professionals are would perhaps already know about this loss but Mm -hmm. being able to kind of say you know aside from what they would normally do that you need the space to be able to talk about certain things or you know and just also thinking about how it's impacted you because sometimes that might have impacted a relationship it might impact certain things about how you see yourself so I would say it might be that therapy might be a useful space to actually really explore the loss and you know often with loss when you've experienced that there's a huge anxiety about experiencing it again completely of course there would be and not everybody understands that or can meet you in that place so I think wanting to maybe seek out a bereavement therapist or you know professionals who do work in loss and, and there are professionals like that I think is another thing but I also wanted to mention that the NHS have started rolling out maternal mental health services and so these are a bit different to I forgot to mention actually perinatal community mental health teams. So mm-hmm. that's another way you can place you can seek help. And that's for people who normally have some moderate to severe mental health difficulties during the perinatal period. You can't self-refer. Normally it would either be your GP or your midwife or your health visitor or your obstetrician or something that would refer you to that. But they also have maternal mental health services as well. And that's specifically for people who've experienced loss, trauma, some sort of birth trauma or perinatal trauma, and I think something called tocophobia, like an intense phobia and fear of pregnancy and or birth. So there are services out there. But yeah, it's a bit of a postcode lottery, to be honest. It's not everywhere, but it might be that your area has that service and you might want to inquire about being able to be referred to that. Mm. Yeah. One person has asked, how should you deal with intrusive thoughts during pregnancy and after? Okay, so intrusive thoughts. I mean, obviously, I don't know what type of intrusive thoughts this person's talking about, but... For some people, intrusive thoughts happen because they've had maybe a traumatic birth. And so with trauma, you can get intrusive like thoughts or images that come into your mind because of something traumatic that happens. And that's the nature of trauma. It kind of almost just keeps coming into your awareness. You don't want it to. So I don't know if that's what this person is talking about. So if that, it might be that it is a trauma and you might need to you know, either have a birth debrief or it might be that you want to go and talk to somebody about seeking trauma-focused therapy. Again, you can go through your GP and through that line of the NHS of getting support, but obviously waiting lists are extremely long. Yeah. Or you can get therapy, you know, outside of that, as in, in terms of working through or processing the trauma, if that's what the intrusive thoughts are about. But I think one useful thing is just to remember the intrusive thoughts, they can be quite compelling and very hard to ignore of course, but is to remember that they're happening because if it is a trauma, it's because of the trauma. It's not pleasant. It's not nice. It's not about accepting or liking it, but it's just this is happening because you had a traumatic birth, for example. 
you're not that there's anything wrong with you or yeah. and sometimes people can be worried that they're going to do something or they're going to act on their thoughts or the thoughts are going to come true or something like that but it's just to remember that they are thoughts as compelling and as provocative as they can be in terms of the emotions that it stirs up in you is to remember that and then the other I guess type of intrusive thoughts can be more in the context of obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. so that's when to put it simply you might struggle with sort of like obsessional thoughts or ruminations about certain things or certain topics and then you might feel you need to engage in certain behaviors or rituals as a way to kind of manage these obsessional thoughts or neutralize them or get rid of them in a way but that kind of just keeps perpetuating them so in that context sometimes people those obsessional thoughts are intrusive you don't want the thoughts but they keep popping into your head and for some people that might be especially in the perinatal period it, it can normally be around harm coming to your baby or harm coming to you or you potentially harming your baby whether mm-hmm. that's intentionally or unintentionally but it's normally around a feeling of not being safe or there being some sort of danger or threat to threat around you so again in that situation it's just being able to remember that those thoughts are happening because of the anxiety not because you're actually going to act on them or because it's actually going to happen but it's easy for me to say that but ultimately that's the sort of thing you can work on in in therapy with a therapist who can kind of sit down with you and go through the different thoughts you might be having but just also to say intrusive thoughts are really common lots of people have them like bizarre horrible thoughts that they would never want to happen or they would never want to act on but lots of people do have them and sometimes what makes a difference is that somebody might just be able to be like oh yeah that was a bit of a strange thought or about abnormal thought and they can kind of move on with that it doesn't carry that much weight but for other people especially if you're already prone to anxiety you have that thought and you might think oh my gosh why did I have that thought what was that about am I Mm going to act on it or am I going to do this or am I going to do that so but just remember that intrusive thoughts are common I would say everybody has them it's just not something people go around disclosing that they have these types of thoughts the almost flip side to that which is something that I've only really heard about this year is disassociation yes yeah shall I say yes. <laughs> say a bit about that yes okay. because otherwise yeah. I will paraphrase and say something that it is not but this is something that I've never even heard of before but yeah the person that was spoke to me about it is again linked to a trauma so yes. for me yeah. it's fascinating to see how our brains cope with these yeah. things and in such different ways yeah yeah so disassociation normally happens as a result of trauma so I guess in a way how can I explain it in a way that doesn't sound really confusing but It's a way of kind of like almost disconnecting Mm -hmm. with something traumatic happening. I want to say it's on a continuum because we all dissociate. That might be daydreaming, fantasizing, being on autopilot where you're not present. You're there, but you're not there. Mm -hmm. We all have experiences of that, you know, to varying degrees. But for some people, it might be to the point where they don't have any, you know, they, they have lapses in their memory because they're really not there. Or for some people, it might be that on a very severe end, it might be that they will have days where it's almost like they're a different person. They're not connected to who they are. For other people, they might have times where they kind of like they know they've been out and done certain things, but they they know that because they can see that they spent money on Mm. their card or right. they use that you know their oyster card or something like that but I do want to emphasize that that's more on the extreme or the not extreme the severe end of dissociation but it's for some people they might experience it as just numbness where they just can't feel they just feel completely disconnected or it's almost like an out-of-body experience and people have talked about this especially in the context of birth trauma it's almost like 
they were watching them everything going on they were watching themselves but they weren't really there for some people it's like almost like watching what's happening like a movie or like on a tv screen Mm. but they don't really feel like they're there some people also feel kind of depersonalized where it's almost like they don't feel like they're there or they don't feel like a real concept of themselves they feel like they're unreal and that their surroundings are unreal yeah and so I don't know if I'm explaining it's, it's a bit complicated no, to explain, but I suppose and... what I'm, it's just a detachment and disconnection from yourself or the world around you and the people around you and it can take lots of different forms but it does happen as a result of trauma because I guess when you're when something traumatic happens it's such a, an overwhelm to the system yeah. that it's almost like your body or your mind has to shut down yeah. in order to cope with it. Even hearing snippets of things like that, because someone might be listening and just have that moment of realisation of that's me, but never been able yeah. to vocalise it, put it into words, or even think about going to seek help for it. It's really important that things like that are talked about that you know even like little snippets you know and even today like the today's podcast episode we're scratching the surface you know but in doing that we're we're hoping that people realize that actually it's not that scary to go and, and seek the help that's there definitely yeah so for the final question someone has said what do you do if you are concerned that you or a loved one may have perinatal anxiety we've kind of touched on what to do if you think you've got it how can we help other people that we think might be experiencing it because that's such a tricky thing to go to someone Mm. and say I think maybe you should see a doctor because obviously if they're already feeling anxious they've already got that anxiety Mm. that might not be a welcomed bit of information that you're throwing their way (laughs) yeah yeah exactly the thing is is that whatever you might say even if you say it in the gentlest way it might still be met with resistance or difficulty and I think that's okay it doesn't mean you're saying the wrong thing or it doesn't mean that you shouldn't say it because sometimes these are difficult things but they need to be said especially Mm. if it's somebody you know you care deeply about so just to remember that we can't always wrap up everything we say in a really lovely nice you know it's just not always going to happen and if we're aiming for that before we say something we might miss the opportunity so I think just to remember that I think the other thing is just to be gentle but what I would say is that it could be useful to just notice So rather than say, I think you need to go to the doctor, right, you need to go and see the GP because, you know, your anxiety is really high. It could just be like, I've noticed that you keep mentioning this or I've noticed that, oh, you don't really come out so much anymore or whatever it might Mm -hmm. be. Or I'm noticing that you seem really tense all the time. It's a very different way of trying to connect with someone because in a way like you're validating their experience and you're showing them that you see them and you notice them in a way that's caring I'm not saying everybody will respond well to that but I think a lot of people do you know because it's like coming from a place of care and concern as long as you do it gently and it's just like I've noticed that I'm just wondering have you noticed that because sometimes we notice things about people that we don't know that we're doing and other people notice it and it can just be a conversation and just be like you know well if you ever wanted to chat about it or just being open and just being there and saying that like, I'm here for you, mm. you know, but not just I'm here for you, but then you never really check in with them. Obviously, just check in, tell them what you notice if you feel that you have that type of relationship to be able to do that and ask them, what do you think would help? Do you, do, you, do you feel like anything would help or do you feel like you need help with it? And if they say that they do, well, what do you think will help? Because I think as loved ones, it's very easy to be like, well, I think you need to do this or I found this on the internet. So let's do this or maybe we can go here or speak to this person it's like I think it's about putting that person at the center of it and it's like what do you think I mean I have some ideas but I want to hear what you've got to say or what you think might help because they might not be interested in it at all and if they're not we have to respect that 
I think the best we can do in those situations is just to keep checking in and noticing. Obviously, I'm not talking about in a really extreme situation or something like that, obviously, yeah. where you might sometimes need to just override somebody's boundaries about yeah. certain things because they're in actual danger. But if it's just that nobody's unsafe, an unsafe situation, sometimes we just have to accept that. And, you know, sometimes people will come to that realisation themselves. You know, we have to be patient with our loved ones as well. Yeah. And also know that we might see something, they might also see it, but they might not be ready to admit that that's what's going on for them. I think it's also important in, in how you have those conversations as well. In like where mm. are you eyeballing them across a table or are you, <laughs> you know, out on a nice little walk to, to you know, feed the ducks or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very good, very valid point. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I would love you to complete these three sentences. Okay. <laughs> being a parent means. Hmm. Being a parent means. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I've been put on the spot now. Being a parent means getting to know who you are and getting to know who your child is and building a relationship based on that. I think that's what being a parent is, is what I would say. <laughs> if I could tell you one thing, it would be? That your feelings are valid. Even if you're the only one who's able to say that, and you might not be getting that same message from other people, but that your feelings are valid. Because only you know you best, mm. is probably what I would say. <laughs> and finally, I'm happy when? My son smiles at me in the morning oh. <laughs> when I come to get him out of his cot. <laughs> <laughs> Orin, thank you so, so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.